the very important part, if you're a designer trying to open a studio, is that your job is going to change from being a designer. Um, and doesn't mean it changes entirely. Even for us, we're small enough for me to still be hands-on when I want to be hands-on and still be hands-off when I don't want to be hands-on. But the huge part of, uh, of uh, our journey as a studio was me trying to find clients, me trying to make sure the current clients we have are happy and they're coming back to us, right? So it's going away from spending time in Figma to spending more time writing proposals or um, doing sales for potential clients. The discipline of design is now key to building great products. More and more companies are making space for it at the higher levels. More people than ever want to become designers. And most of us who already do the job want to find ways to have just a little bit more impact in our teams. Welcome to Design Meets Business. I'm Christian Vasile, and on this podcast, I bring you world-class product and design leaders who found ways to shape products, companies, and entire industries, and who are now sharing what they know with you and me. My hope is that we all get to learn from the experiences, ideas, and stories shared on this podcast, and in the process, become better designers. My guest today is Dan Tasse, formerly with Burberry, Just Eat, and Farfetch. When we recorded this episode, Dan was the founder of Rubber Studio, but he has since decided to wind down operations. Still, this is the first episode in three seasons of the show where we discuss what it takes to open a studio, how to get clients, and the challenges of becoming a studio owner after years of being an individual contributor. It's a great episode if you want to understand what studio life is all about, and maybe if you're wondering whether it's something for you or not. Dan, welcome to Design Miss Business. I'm so happy to have a fellow Romanian on the podcast. I'm making a habit out of this. I had Iona Teleanu last season. I'm having you this season. So that's really awesome. We've been following each other for a little while on Twitter or X, sorry, as it's called now. And you've got such a nice journey from starting out in Romania, moving to England, working for some household brands that most people would have heard of and doing really good work there. So I'd like to get with you today to unpack a little bit where you're coming from and this story that I've been telling about and, and how you got here. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's great to talk to you and finally put a face to the person I've been interacting with online for quite a while now. To tell you a bit about my journey, I, I think it's it may be atypical. I started doing design around 15 years ago. It was more of an accident. I was a failed artist. I was doing art as a kid and in high school I was doing graffiti and I wasn't a very good graffiti writer, to be honest. At some point, because I realized I'm struggling to be a good graffiti writer, I downloaded Photoshop, I downloaded a Photoshop tutorial, and I started learning how to design, I guess. Um, it wasn't, I had no idea it's called design at that point. I think it was more like, I'm just drawing in this digital tool. I started posting my work online. And I guess the great thing that happens when you're doing graffiti is you have a community of artists around you, other graffiti writers, musicians, dancers, and, and so on. And at one point, one of my friends asked me to do a poster for his next gig. I did that. I really enjoyed it. So I started doing more of it. So I think that's a very short story on how I got into design. And the rest of it is, I guess, just happened naturally. I realized I have to make money. I finished high school. I, it made no sense for me to not make a, a job out of this thing that I'm doing. So I got my first job doing graphic design for a very small studio in my hometown. I then got a bigger job at a bigger company where I started learning web design. The iPhone was launched around the same time. So I started learning app design as well. And time flew by. I moved to London. I started working at companies such as Just Deep, Farfetch, Burberry, and so on. And I've been doing some sort of hands-on product design and design leadership. I find so many stories of the people I brought on the podcast to be so similar. I don't think I've had any one person saying, Oh, I've always known I wanted to become a designer. I just, that's all I, what I always wanted to be. It's most of the time it's happenstance. It just so happens that you were probably in the right place at the right time, or you discovered Photoshop at the key part of your early teenage years or whatever it may be. So uh, I find it interesting that it's always the same. They're very different today. Sometimes if someone wants to, to start and you ask them, why do you want to become a designer? They, they, it's like, I've always wanted to be one because the industry is a bit more mature now. So I guess it, we're getting there. We're People are perhaps growing up wanting to become designers, but very few of us have done that. It's just, it just happened, didn't it? 
Yeah, I agree. When I was starting to learn what design is, there was no design university, at least not in Romania. At that point, that, that wasn't a thing. Maybe in the UK, that was a thing. But I think most of the designers that I know nowadays are self-taught. Even if they study design, I still feel like you learn more on the job than you learn in the design university. And I don't think designers or was the kind of job you would dream of. You would dream to be a musician or, I don't know, a painter or all sorts of things. And I think design was, personally for me, it was a good compromise between my artistic side and my less artistic side or less creative side. I think it was a good way to make a living. And I realized I'm much better at that than I would ha ever have been. Talking about school, you said there was no university back then. If you were to start today, would you go to university or how would you start? Oh, I don't want to discourage people from going to university. My personal experience, once again, back home in Romania with university wasn't too great. I don't feel like I've learned a lot. I did learn more on the job, generally, not just like from a design perspective, but I did meet people that went to university and I did meet some absolutely incredible designers just coming out of uni at companies like Farfetch and Burberry. I think it really depends on what you want. If you feel like university is going to help you, go for it. If you feel like you want to study design, go for that. Um, I also know a lot of people that are incredible designers that never studied design. They studied business or they studied marketing or studied other things. So I think in the end, it's just figure out what makes more sense for you and, and go for that. I think you learn a lot of things in school about structure and about rules. Generally, you have to know the rules in order to break them, right? That's uh, one of the key aspects of design. And I feel like I struggled a lot with that early on in my career. I did not know the rules. I was just doing what felt or seemed nice. And there wasn't as much documentation online for you to learn the, the rules without going to school. So I think that's something that would be very helpful. I think at the end of the day, it's also about the environment you learn best in. Because the purpose of going to university is not to go to university, it's to learn so that you can practice the craft later. And there are so many opportunities for learning today, whether that's university in quite a few countries, but it's also just a lot of this content that is getting produced online and also courses and boot camps. And even, I don't know if listeners are familiar with Chris Doe from the future, who is just an absolute legend of design teaching, if you will, design and design teaching. And I've learned so much from that person all for free. So I think... There's a good side and a bad side. The good side is that there's so much content out there just for free and freely available. The perhaps not so good side is that it's also a bit overwhelming. If you want to start today, where do you start with all of this content? And how do you differentiate between what's good content online and what's not good content online? Because you have no idea. You have no baseline. If I would want to start today, I actually don't know where I would start from. I agree. I, I totally agree with that. And I think I was having a conversation with one of the designers in, in our team this week about how many things that are happening on a daily basis in the design world. And it's almost impossible to be up to speed with everything. Even like the feature that Figma is launching. I use Figma on a daily basis. And occasionally I find this new thing that I, I was never aware of. And when I talk to someone else, they're like, yeah, that's been live for six months now. And I'm like, I have I had no idea that was the case. There's a lot of information on the internet today, and it's very hard to process that and to understand what's relevant and what's not. So I, I totally get where that's coming from. One of the reasons I brought you on is because after having all of this experience working for these big brands, you have decided to just go solo and, well, not so much solo, but rather start a, a small design studio in the middle of a recession, which I find that to be a, a very interesting choice. So I would really like to dig into that a bit more. What made you want to move away from working with some of these brands, which look really great on a resume, to just doing your own thing. How was that journey? How is your day-to-day? -day? Let's, let's just unpack that a little bit. Okay, yeah. I think I'm, I'm going to start with why we started the studio. It was always a dream of mine to have a small team of people that I'm working with. And at some point after freelancing for a bit, I realized I was getting more work that I could take on. And I had to say no to people. And I had to say no to some very interesting and exciting projects. And a lot of the times as a freelancer, I felt lonely, although I was part of these companies and working in a very embedded manner, I still felt like I'm on my own doing the work, right? I had other designers within the companies I was working with. I had PMs and managers and engineers and so on. I still felt like I wanted something that's a bit bigger than myself. And it did not have to be massive, but just having one or two other people that I'm working with. So at some point when I ended one of the contracts I was on, I've decided to not say no to other exciting projects in the future and just find other people to support me on those projects. And luckily, as soon as I finished the contract, I had one project, then another one came up and 
started building this network of people, this network of very talented designers, sometimes engineers or strategists as well. And it more or less turned into uh, a studio. I'm very reluctant to calling it a studio simply because I don't feel like it follows the traditional studio structure where you have many different projects and many employees. For us, it was uh, slightly different. We decided to just build this network of talented designers and bring them together for the various projects when we needed them. So the core team is still me and it's uh, always been me, but we've had very long-term collaborations with other people. We have a designer that's been with us for almost two years now since we opened the studio another designer for around a year, and we're just bringing people to work uh, with us on all of the exciting projects we have going on. But to be honest, uh, one of the other reasons we started the studio is because I was a bit frustrated with what happened in the studio world at that point. I've worked with other studios in the past. I've hired studios to work with us when I was in-house, and I also contracted or consulted for other studios. And don't get me wrong, there are some very good studios out there, but a lot of the times, it's still that old studio mentality of, Give us a brief, we're going to go away for six months and get back to you with what we believe is the right solution, which I don't think is the way you build great products. So I want to build a studio that's very embedded, a studio that works very closely with clients and a studio that helps those clients shake things up. So companies usually come to us when they struggle with a problem in-house, they fail to find a solution for it and they need someone to push them buttons and help them find more innovative or creative solutions for that particular problem. But that's how it started. I think it was more or less an, an accident. It's still more or less an accident. Like we don't have a proper plan of going. We've been around six people. Now we're around three people. So it really depends on kind of the workload and what happens in the industry. Yeah, I think it's uh, interesting what you're talking about there. And I've heard that approach several times. I'm going to mention him again, but I actually think even Chris Doe talks about that approach where he says the best way to start a studio is to start on your own. And then as you get more work offered to you, hire other people to to do it or to help you with it, rather than starting with this grandiose plan, hiring people and not having any work to give them, just start more organically. And it sounds like you've done some of the same. I want to press a button there. You've talked a bit about the, the difference between how most studios work. And I've been part of a couple of those myself, so I know exactly what you're talking about and how, how you want to work. And you said this thing, I think it's on the website, Great work only happens through close partnerships. We're in it from kickoff to launch and beyond. And for me, the and beyond is really the, the, the key for this. So let's talk a little bit about what do you mean by and beyond and why do you think it's such an important part of building great products? That idea came from exactly what I was mentioning earlier, which is a traditional studio gets a brief, they go away and they get back to you with the, what they think is the right solution. That never works and it, it definitely did in my opinion. So what we do is whenever we work with a client, we act as a plugin for their internal tech and product team. So let's say client A comes to us and they decide to, to work with us on a particular project. We're going to join their team on a daily basis, the same way a full-time employee would. And we tackle all the design-related aspects that would help them get that new feature or new product off the ground. Now, the reason I'm saying from, I guess, from day one to launch and beyond is because as a digital designer, you have to follow up on your work. So a lot of the times when something gets shipped, that's not the end. It's just the start. You ship it, it's out in the world, people can use it. You measure the impact and then you start making improvements, improvements to that. So a lot of our work is, is actually that. It's not just shipping something, but it's working with that company post-shipping and trying to figure out what happened with it. It could be a very quick A-B test. It could be a bigger feature. But a very important part is following up on that and trying to make it better after. So measuring the impact, going back to the drawing board if it's failed, and trying to find new ways of making it work. And I think that's a very important reason on why companies come back to us with new initiatives. A lot of the times we work on something, it gets shipped, we provide a bit of support on that, but three to six months um, later, the company comes back to us to do some follow-ups or iterations or to work on something else, simply because they really like that close partnership. It never felt like an agency company collaboration. It felt like we were one team. One of my pet peeves with design studios has always been the fact that their incentive don't always come from doing quality work, but from doing the work fast so that they can be able to move on to the next client. It's part of why I'm not a big fan of working in agencies is because I, it's hard sometimes to put your name on it when you know that the work is, just as you said, the work that you've delivered as an agency is just the beginning. It's not really where the product is going to go. And I think that a lot of the exciting working product is 
after you launch the first thing. It's such a shame not to be able to be part of that after you've done the hard work of delivering an MVP or whatever you've been asked to deliver. I personally just want to get my hands dirty with whatever's coming up next, optimization and building the roadmap and, and e exploring the future from there. So, but of course, I'm not, I don't want to sit here and trash agencies. There's also a reason that they exist and they also do good work. But I think it's a clever approach to say, we're going to stay embedded for as long as it, it takes to make this product a success. How do you work with these companies that have historically been used to a different model, which is, hey, here's a brief, do the work, goodbye. Is that something that you discuss early on or are they attracted to your model because they already believe that's the right thing? What are your thoughts there? That's a very good question. I think part of why these companies are working with us, and we've had some like big name clients, to be honest, we've also had some very successful small startups working with us. And it's because of that. A huge reason is that they're looking for help, but working with a traditional agency is so difficult and so tricky and so risky that they don't want to take those risks. And we make that very clear whenever we talk to a, to a client or to a potential client. We have a deck that we're going through, and as part of that deck, we share quite a bit about our work and about our process. And they know all those things from the get-go. They know that we're going to be there from day one. We're going to join the internal processes, not just stand-ups, but also retros and design reviews. And we're going to be part of their team, and we're going to contribute to the entire company and the entire organization, not just this particular team we're part of. So a lot of the times, the work we've been doing has impacted many other teams within the business. And we had to work very closely with those teams. So to be honest, it's like a, once again, like a plugin for their in-house team. Whenever they feel like they need some additional support for just a few months, or they're in the process of hiring someone and that process takes longer than they expected, they come to us and we help them figure out what they need to do next. But that's a big part of our proposition. And of course, there are other things. One, one other thing that uh, I think we're doing very well is staying extremely small, as small as possible. Another issue I have with most agencies is because of the model they have, the idea is to put as many people on a project as possible to be able to charge more, right? If you have 10 people, you're going to make much more money than if you have one or two people. Although realistically speaking, when you have one or two people on a project, you're probably going to make a much bigger impact. You're probably going to ship things faster simply because there's less talking. And a lot of the times teams could be half the size that they are and they would perform much, much better. And that's very controversial, controversial, and I think that's very debatable as well. But it's what I've noticed in working with many companies across the last year. I think there's a reason early stage startups move at a such frightening pace that sometimes bigger, more established companies cannot keep up with them. And you think, how is it possible? We have hundreds of employees. How can they move so much faster when they have 15? Perhaps it's debatable whether that's the right approach in every single company. I agree with you, but I don't think it's debatable whether the smaller companies are more lean and move faster than bigger companies. That's also certainly true in my experience. And it's one of the advantages that startups have, isn't it? So I, I fully agree. And you also notice as you join different kinds of companies, so the, the larger ones or medium size, that there are a lot of processes in place that you didn't used to have in startups. And these are delaying you a little bit. That's just the reality of a bigger company. And look, it's not for everyone. There are some people who would really thrive in these companies with a bit more process. And there are also people who thrive in early stage companies as well. But I, I definitely agree with the, with, with the staying lean. I think there's a sweet spot, right? I don't think processes are bad. I think processes are great. But there could be a thing, too much process is slowing things down a lot. And I also think no process is very, very bad. So when you work with a very small startup and there's nothing there, that's good for a while. But at some point, that's that becomes like a pain in the ass as well. So there's a sweet spot, like just enough process. The same way there is a sweet spot in terms of research. And we have this quote of saying that we use, just enough research. There's also a book on it. I feel like many large organizations spend months and months and months doing research when in reality they could have done half of that and still get to a great outcome. So it's all about achieving those sweet spots. And it takes a long time for a company to figure out what those are. But companies in recent years like Airbnb, essentially removing their PM team because they realize it's slowing them down, or Shopify, like removing all the meetings because they realize it's slowing them down. I think there's gonna, we're going to see, in the next few years, we're going to see many companies trying to adapt their processes because they realize they are very, very slow and that's not good for the business. I'm thinking of a few listeners that might be sitting there listening to this right now and considering that 
they might want to start their own little studio and they don't have any experience doing it. Might be the first time. They don't know what's in store for them. They just know it sounds like a great idea. Oh, I get to work for myself. I get to pick and choose my clients. I get to manage other people, do my own hiring and all of that. On paper, that sounds great. What should one of these listeners expect when they go into starting their own studio? I think everyone has their own journey. And what I can share is how my journey was like. It doesn't mean you cannot have a different journey, right? I think that I want to make that very clear. I am typically not a very good businessman. I'm a very good designer, but a very bad businessman. And I make many bad business decisions in my journey as a studio founder simply because I cared more about the work than I cared about the transactional slash business aspect. But the very important part, if you're a designer trying to open a studio, is that your job is going to change from being a designer to being a business person. And doesn't mean it changes entirely. Even for us, we're small enough for me to still be hands-on when I want to be hands-on and still be hands-off when I don't want to be hands-on. But a huge part of, a, of uh, our journey as a studio was me trying to find clients, me trying to make sure the kind of clients we have are happy and they're coming back to us, right? So it's going away from spending time in Figma to spending more time writing proposals or um, doing sales for potential clients. Now, luckily, we were small enough for us to not need 20 clients at once, right? We only needed one or two clients working with us for the next few months to be happy and to not have to do sales anymore. And luckily we've done very good work. So those clients mostly came back to us with more work in the future. So in the last two and a half years, I think we had maybe six or seven clients with a very, very small team. And I don't think we could have done more than that. But your life changes. Previously, I was contractor or a freelancer, or I was working in household companies, I had to do the work and that was more or less enough. That was all I needed to do. When I switched to being a studio founder, my life became much more stressful and I'm grateful for that stress because I've learned a lot from it. But besides doing the work and making sure that the work gets done in a good manner and managing the team, which is what I was doing in-house as well, I had to do sales. I had to do marketing for the studio. I had generally this pagal stress in the back of my mind, like at the end of the month, I'm going to have to pay these people and I have to make sure there's ongoing work for them to stay on. And that adds up. And after two and a half years, I did feel like when we started growing, I was much more stressed than where we are now, where we, when we are a bit smaller than, uh, what, than a year ago. And I think that's very difficult. It's very difficult to not see that as a failure. But in reality, I think it's just the journey of a studio. Your life changes. And I think it's very hard for you to keep being a designer if you are running business. I think that's such good insight. A lot of people might be sitting here thinking, oh, I'll just design more for more clients or, uh, you know, but, but this reminds me of that shift that designers at some point in time might have to consider, which is I've been an individual contributor forever. And now I'm senior enough to perhaps go into managing a team. Oh, this is a promotion. And actually it's not a going from a senior designer to, or, or a lead designer to a design manager is actually not a promotion. It's a lateral move because it's a completely different job. It could still be a hybrid role. You could still be in Figma a little bit, but now you suddenly need other skills, managing people, more stakeholder management, overseeing multiple projects at the time being good at giving feedback, being good at helping people grow. There are a lot of other things that you haven't potentially learned during your time being an individual contributor. And this is what it reminds me of as well, is you've, if you're a great designer and you might have the tendency to think, I'm a great designer, I'm, I'm going to be a great studio owner because it's a design studio. But what you're talking about is completely different. There are other skills that you actually need to be good at. So off the back of that, you said you've made some bad decisions. We don't need to go into those, but what I'm really curious about is these skills that you had to learn, sales, is especially around sales and getting clients. Have you learned that as you, you know, kind of assembled the plane as you jumped off a cliff? How was that journey for you? Before the studio actually became a thing, I started talking to other studio founders. I emailed them out of nowhere. Some were new to me, some people I've known for quite a while. And I asked them to hop on a call with me. And many of them agreed, many of them were happy to help. And to be honest, they were very transparent and they shared all of these things with me. And I think they, they helped build the solid foundation for me to be able to start doing sales at a more mature level than I was doing before. And I think that was very important. 
On top of that, I do think there's a lot of knowledge on the internet today. I've had massive benchmarking rounds with other studios, looking at what they're doing, trying to get my hands on proposals that I send my friends that are working in-house, saving all those to a folder, trying to learn about how they essentially sell the services they're doing, how they promote the company, learning a lot from that and trying to build our own proposal and our own pitch based on all of those things. But I went... I don't know. I went with it without thinking too much. I, I never had a proper plan for running the studio. And I think that was good for me because I'm not the kind of person that plans things a lot in advance. If I think too much about something, I'm probably not going to do it anymore. And this just happened naturally. And I think because of that, because I've hit so many walls, I learned a lot and I realized how we can do better. And to be honest, I feel like for the, la- for the first year, we've changed our proposition maybe two or three times. In the early stage, it was more about just getting any kind of work that would be suitable for our experience and our expertise. After a few months of that, I realized, hey, we're really good at this thing. I want to do more of that. And I think it, there's a gap in the industry for it. So we started going for those kinds of projects. And then after a few more months, I realized that maybe that's not working as well as I thought it would. What if we do this other thing instead? So you always have to adapt. I think we've done it too quickly, but you always have to adapt to what the market needs are. And... That's very similar to what you do as a designer and a particular team. You have to figure out what's working and if it's not, go back to the drawing board. But when you do that at an organizational level, I think it is a bit more. I was thinking, this is this sounds oddly similar to what we do as designers on a daily basis. You have a problem, you go try to understand what the problem is. You go see what others have done. Can I learn something from them? Then you apply what you've learned and then you iterate on the process until you figure out the right solution. So if anything, perhaps designers are best equipped at doing this because it is, but it, but it's, it's different because it's on an organization level. It's not sitting in Figma and iterating on a visual piece of work. It's different, but the same concept behind it. So you mentioned sales so many times, and obviously it's part of any business that anyone would run. Sales is an important part because no clients, no business. Someone might be sitting here and thinking, Dan, but how do you get clients? Where do you start? What's the process like? What has worked for you? What hasn't worked for you very well? You've already mentioned people coming back. So I guess that's great. But those are, you know, returnees. They're not necessarily the first time you get them. But could you share some light on that? This might be very similar to how you would approach this as a freelancer. I don't think there's anything radically different. And we've tried many things. The first client we had was a company I've worked with in the past that needed a bit of help and I convinced them to work with us as a studio. So that was, I think that's the first best place to start, right? Talk to all the people you've worked with in the past and see if any of them needs a bit of support. And I think that's how most studios start, to be honest. I remember some of the biggest studios out there when I was talking to their founders, they either left the studio they were, were working for and got one of their clients to work with them, or they were working in-house. And then when they opened the studio, the first client was the company they were working for. I think that's very common. And I think that's a very good start because there's a trusting relationship there, right? They trust you. They know the work you're doing. So they're going to trust your team to continue doing the same work at the same level. But that's not enough, right? That's just the, the starting point. What we've done on top of that, and I'm being as transparent as I can, what we've done on top of that is just reaching out to all of the people I've connected with in the past, all the people I've worked with, all the people that I've talked to, all the people that have known me. And the great thing when you do this at a certain level, once you go past just being an individual contributor or when you're early in your career, is that people, you build a network of people that are happy to listen, not necessarily to give you work, but to listen or to recommend you to others, right? So once you've done that, we got one other project just based on talking to someone, that person being like, hey, we don't need any help, but I've heard this person might. So just reach out to them and send me a recommendation. So I think that's very healthy. But it gets to a point where your network kind of ends and there's not much you can do beyond that, right? After I talk to everyone in my network and I realize they, there's no other work out there. Most of the people already know what we're doing. They trust us and still there's not a lot of work you get to a point where you have to extend your network. And that happens through social media. That happens through going to meetups. It happens to just talking to new people. And it's not easy. And I felt like that was probably one of the hardest parts of running a studio. When you you cannot find any more work in your network, how do you go beyond that? And we've tried cold emailing people. Personally, I don't think it works. And I it was... One of the most painful things I ever had to do, like reaching out to the void, essentially. Like reaching out to companies and people I've been following for a long time, now a huge fan of, and not receiving an answer, right? That's awful. But you get to that point where you feel like, hey, many businesses do that. Is it worth it? And after doing that for a bit, I realized, no, it's not. And I don't want to 
spam people and working with us. But luckily, because we're doing very good work, the companies we got early on stayed with us for a long time. I think our longest client was a year. Our second longest client is almost a year now. So we've had those kinds of relationships with companies where we were working on something for a few months. A month later, they were coming back to us with something else. And we didn't have to do a lot of sales. Now, there is another option in which you hire a business development person. And we tried that for a bit. Personally, I don't think business development in a small studio does a very good job. And it's not because there aren't many talented people out there. I think it's simply because as a small studio, you might not need business development. No one's going to sell your services as well as you do as a founder. And that was a kind of a hard lesson for, for me. But generally, I do feel a lot of it is just doing great work, sharing it with people, and hoping more people are going to reach out to you. You've said something there a couple of times, and obviously just the fact that people are returning to you, that's a statement to the fact that you do good work. And I, I, th I think it can't be stressed enough just how important that part of it is. You can be great at sales, but unless you do good work, you're unlikely to have people come back. And I've, I don't think it's, a, it's very debatable whether keeping a customer happy versus acquiring a new customer, which one is a cheaper, let's call it business strategy or on a CPA level, it costs you so much to get a new customer, but to keep the one you already have, it is relatively cheaper. So I guess it's the same with what you're talking about with referrals is that they come back, but not only they come back, but they are also more likely to recommend someone. If they come back to you, it's because you've done good work. And that also means that they are more likely to recommend you to someone else as well. Have you had any success with you know, referrals or, or have you tried anything like that to just offer people a referral fee or something like that? Yeah, we actually got a few projects just with referral fees and we've done the opposite as well. When we had projects that weren't suitable for us, we passed them on to other people for a referral fee. I think that's a very healthy way of looking at things. There's this documentary on Shep Gordon. He was, uh, I guess, a manager for Pink Floyd and Alice Cooper and Janice Joplin, if I remember correctly. And he had this notion of coupons. Whenever someone asks you for help, you're going to help them and you're going to do it because you really want to help them. But in the back of their minds, there's a coupon there. So next time you reach out to them for help, they know you've helped them in the past and they're going to, they're going to want to help you as well. And I think that the concept is, personally, I think it's very healthy. I think it's a good way of looking at things. Whenever someone passes us a project, we pay them a commission. And whenever we do the same for someone else, they pay us a commission. And I think that's a good way of looking at it. I don't think it happened very frequently, but it, it's a pattern. I know many studios that get work that way. When it comes to pitching work, what, in your experience, what have you seen clients care mostly about when they, you're face-to-face -face with them and they're about to make a decision whether to choose you or someone else? What is more often than not the reason why they choose you versus someone else? I don't want to talk about the reason, the, the specific reason. I think we've touched upon that a bit. I want to talk about what they try to do when they choose a studio. Generally, they want to minimize risk. They have two studios. Both of them fit the budget. Right? I think that's a very important thing. Generally, if you have charged them more than they can afford to pay you, they're not going to go for you. That's default. But if they have two people or two studios that they want to choose between, they both fit the budget. They're going to go with the one that is probably going to provide less risk. They're going to choose the studio that they trust more and the studio that, that they think and it's going to be maybe a bit more collaborative. At the end of the day, the person that's hiring you, right, it could be a design manager, a head of design, a founder, whoever they are. At the end of the day, if things go bad, within the company, it's going to be their fault. And those people are going to watch their backs more than anything else. That's why I've seen many companies that choose a large studio or like a very popular studio, not because they think they're going to do a good job, but because they think at the end of the day, they're going to get a good enough job for me to not get fired. Because it happened in the past, there were million dollar projects I've heard of where people got fired in the other one because nothing got shipped or nothing was making an, an impact. So in those conversations, our goal was to make sure that these companies trust us and to handle the risk associated with that project. And they trust us enough to give us the work and making, make sure that what gets delivered is actually good for them. I'm going to mention him for a third time on this episode. But Chris Doe talks about the risk all the time. He says... The reason someone would hire you over someone else is because you have somehow through your discourse as you were pitching indicated that you were the less risky situation for similar reasons to the ones you've just laid out. Is that the person hiring you, often their job on the line because they're going to spend a lot of money on this external contr contractor or, or agency, whatever it may be. So how do you then put a less, how do you then show 
a prospective client that you are the less riskier option. Is there anything there that we could learn from your experience? Anything that you've learned from someone else that you're applying today? I think there are a few things. One is the work, showing that you've done maybe similar work or work that's as risky as what they need in other companies. And that gives them a bit of more trust. The second thing was the collaboration aspect. Because we are more or less part of their team and we act very similarly to how they do things in-house, they would be able to, I'm going to use the word control. I don't think that's the right word for it, but they can control us the same way they would control a full-time employee, right? So they know exactly what we're doing. We know exactly what they're doing. We're part of the business more or less. So there's less risk by default. We are part of their team. So they see what we're doing and they can work with us on a daily basis. I think that, to be honest, that was the thing that impacted our proposition the most. The ability to work with these companies very closely. And there's almost no difference between hiring a full-time employee and hiring us. And that was very important for these businesses, right? But I don't think there's like one one thing you could do to make that work. I think it really depends where the companies you're talking to. Once again, for certain companies, massive studios is the very expensive, but also least risky solution, right? I think it just depends on the companies you're talking to. And we typically ask one question at the end of our conversations with potential clients, which is what's your biggest concern in working with us? And at the end of that, we're going to understand a bit more about what makes them afraid and hopefully in our next conversation, answer that question in such a way that helps them figure out if we're suitable or not. It doesn't mean we're going to adapt who we are, or it doesn't mean we're going to change our process for that company, but it means we can be very clear in terms of, hey, can we help you or can we not help? There were some instances in which a company told us what they were afraid of and we realized, hey, that's not for us. We cannot help you with that. And we recommended them someone else. The first thing you mentioned there, I want to pull a thread on. You said they want to see someone who's done something like this before. And this, I think, is a great segue into perhaps the other side of having an agency, which is the hiring side. You as an owner, you also need to hire when you need help. But the reason I thought this was a good segue is because this to me also reminds me of feedback that uh, or advice that is often given when asked, what is good for me to do when I design my portfolio or when I apply for a job? And oftentimes it's the same answer is a hiring manager wants to see that you've done the sort of work or have solved the sort of problems that they are looking for this role to solve in their own company. So at the end of the day, it's all about risk as well, right? Is when you hire someone is I want to make sure this person has done the job so that I don't hire the wrong person. So that's why I thought it was a good segue to hiring. But when you need to then hire, a client comes through the door and you think, now I need a person and I need a person to be flexible. I need someone to start straight away. What are the things you're looking for and how do you ensure that whoever you hire is going to deliver? Because you need someone to deliver today. Another very good question, and I'm going to answer by a mix of what I've been doing when I was in-house, but also what I'm doing as a studio founder, because I don't think they're radically different. Although in-house, we had a much better process in place, and we had the five-step interviews, which I personally disagree with, but I understand why a company would, would want that. Generally, what I'm looking for in a designer is for them to be a good communicator. That's very important to be enthusiastic, to be collaborative, and generally not to be an asshole, like being a team player and being someone you can work with. And I'm going to dive a bit deeper into each one of them, if that's okay with you. Of course, please. In terms of being a good communicator, I'm looking for people that are able to sell the work, that are able to clearly communicate what they're doing, the problems they're solving, they, that can talk to, to a leadership team or a CEO within a large organization the same way they would talk to a junior designer within the same organization, right? They need to have that experience and doing those kinds of things. And experience doesn't mean like years of experience. It means just being comfortable and having those conversations and being very articulate when you have those conversations. In terms of enthusiastic, I think that's a very debatable topic, but I would much prefer a more junior designer that's very enthusiastic about the particular problem space than a very senior designer that's more or less bored because they've seen that problem 20 times. Right. Of course, if you've seen that problem 20 times in the past, you might be faster at solving it. But you also, there's a high chance you're going to be already bored of that problem. You can look at it and be like, yeah, we're going to do the exact same thing I've done 20 times in the past. But when you get a more enthusiastic person, someone that might be a bit early in their career, I guess, you would get that level of, I don't know, joy from working on that particular thing. And I would always, almost always choose the more enthusiastic person over the, most, the more experienced person. In the studio environment, in-house, that might be slightly different, but in the studio environment, I feel like that made a lot of sense for us. 
And in terms of being not an asshole or uh, a team player, I think a lot of it comes down to, do I see myself working with this person on a daily basis? Do I see myself working well with this person when shit hits the fan, when things don't go well? Because in the studio environment, that's going to happen. Occasionally, you might have very difficult conversations. It happens in house as well, don't get me wrong. And I'm looking for the kind of people I would be happy to learn from, the kind of people that would be happy to have difficult conversations with, the kind of people that open to feedback and they don't take feedback personally. They understand it's not about us as humans. It's about the work we're producing for the companies we're working with. And I think that's the core of what I'm looking for. And it's not necessarily about the pixels they're moving on the screen and the work they produce or the companies they've worked for. I think it's mostly about the conversation we're having and the questions they're asking and how I feel at the end of that conversation. And to be honest, none of the designers we've hired at the studio had a portfolio when we hired them. They had experience. I mean, we have very senior people. So there are people that have worked in many companies before, but the interview was a one hour conversation, just talking to each other, trying to figure out what they like doing, what they dislike doing, what they would like to get better at, what they don't even want to think about doing in the future or getting better at. And just realizing how good they are based on the conversation more than anything else. This has worked very well for us. And I also think many companies that are looking for in-house designers should do a bit more of that. I'm not saying taking it to the extreme like we did, but I think they should do less five-step interview processes where you do a intro call and then you have a portfolio review that has to be so detailed and 20 people are asking you questions. And then you go into, I don't know, a kind of a workshop with a few people within the company to figure out how you're going to solve a problem. And then you have a cultural fit interview. Those make sense. I understand why they happen. I've been in those interviews as well on both sides and I understand why but I think it makes it so difficult for someone looking for a job to get that particular job simply because they have to allocate like days out of their week to be able to prepare and to do that I think it's a very privileged way of looking at things if you're interviewing for two or three companies you have no life all you're doing is interviewing and if you have a job on top of that you actually have no life because all you're doing is going to your job and then interviewing for two or three companies at once it sounds like you put a lot of emphasis on the softer skills. And at the end of the day, if you think about it, when you hire someone, a big part of the success of that hire is how are you going to work with that person on a daily basis? And you said something there. You said, I want to see whether I would like or not to work with this person on a daily basis. And at the end of the day, isn't that what it's all about? Because if the skills are slightly far from where they're supposed to be, if it's someone you really enjoy working with, you're probably also going to take the time much more often to take them on a journey and teach them and show them the latest Figma trick or talk about process with them or whatever it may be because you have that relationship with them versus you might bring someone in who's super experienced and knows it all and is probably a pro, but you don't enjoy working with that person on a daily basis. I really like that more humane approach to interviews and just to hiring is what I enjoy working with. And of course... There has to be a baseline of skills, but oftentimes we perhaps put a bit more emphasis on the skills than on the person. And then we end up in situations where we don't actually enjoy working with each other. And then your skills don't matter as much suddenly because you create all of these other problems. I agree with you. I think there is the other side of the story as well, in which I've seen companies focus only on the soft skills and not focus at all on the work. And that's bad as well, because you hire people that are very collaborative and a joy to work with, but they're very bad at what they're doing, right? Yeah, which is why I said there has to be a baseline of skills. I, I don't think anyone doubts that was, uh, you know, obviously also part of your process. But I, I enjoy the fact that you you focused quite a bit on, on that humane part of hiring as well. The last topic that I want to talk to you about is innovation. A few weeks ago, you've been talking at Hatch Conference about innovation and why it fails and when it fails and you know, how to make sure it happens more of in the future, not the failure, but the actual innovation. Give us the cliff notes of what you've uh, talked about at Hatch. The Hatch talk is probably going to be available online in a few weeks. So if you want to watch that, it's probably going to be on YouTube. The reason I talk about innovation is because I've seen that fail numerous times in, in businesses, especially when I was in-house. And that's one of the things we do as a studio. We help with companies to shake things up and help them become a bit more innovative. So that's our core proposition. Based on what I've noticed, Innovation fails for a few reasons. One reason is adverse to the risk. Companies don't want to take risk. So because they don't want to take risk, they don't do anything or they pause every project that is a bit risky or a bit innovative. 
The other one is that most in-house employees, and that's also debatable, but I think most in-house designers, for example, are very good at business as usual. They're very good at keeping the company alive, but they're not very good at innovating. And it's not because they cannot do that. It's because the job doesn't allow them to do that. And a lot of the time they have to put out fires and make sure the things they're doing aren't breaking anything instead of the things they're doing actually improving things. And I think that leads to a lack of innovation. That leads to a lot of projects getting downsized or not getting shipped. And a very good example I can share is from my time at Just Eat when I joined them back in 2014, 15, I don't remember exactly. When I joined them, one of my first tasks was to work with the leadership team to come up with this list of very innovative ideas that would turn the business upside down and make it much better than our startup competitors at that point, Uber Eats and Deliveroo. And we spent a bit of time with the research team and the leadership team coming up with that list of ideas. And we were very happy about it. We thought it's actually going to change the business. This is incredible. No one has done this before. And we went to share it with the other designers and the leadership team, the rest of the leadership team and the engineers. And when they saw that list, they were all like, yeah, I mean, we know those things. And that was mind-blowing. Like, how come you know about all of these things, yet they are not shipped? A phrase I've heard is most companies have folders filled with great work that never sees the light of the day. And that's exactly what happened. Some of those ideas were sitting in folders. They were already designed. Some were even validated. Some were just sketched on a piece of paper that someone said no to. And I think a lot of the times it's just about finding a way and building some sort of internal innovation squad for you to be able to remove all of the distractions and ship those things that actually matter and are very, very not. But yeah, that, I mean, that's a very long topic and we can spend hours and hours talking about it. I'm sorry, Wood. Maybe I should bring you on again another episode just to talk innovation. Sure, uh, yeah. Dan, at the end of each episode, I asked all the guests the same two questions. And the first one is, what is one action that you think led to your success that in one way or another perhaps separated you from some of your peers? It's probably not going to be seen well in today's day and age, but working hard. I worked a lot early on in my career, and I still do. I'm not saying I don't. I think I work a bit smarter now than I did 15, 20 years ago, but I worked very hard. Early on in my career, it was all about working and growing and doing more and talking to people and becoming a better designer. I think that never changes. The, to be honest, the only way to become a good designer is by working and doing the work, putting the hours in to be able to get better at what you're doing. And I'm not just talking about moving boxes in Figma. I'm talking about generally all of the aspects of being a designer. That's very refreshing to hear because, I don't know, maybe culturally we're coming from the same place, but I also tend to have Similarly, if you would have asked me that question, my answer would have been in that same direction. And I think perhaps some of that is getting lost today. Maybe we're talking a bit more about the downside of working too hard. And those are also very valid. But a lot of people that I talk to, and I've even had some in, the, in this very season on the podcast who gave similar answers about doing it for a long time, putting the work in, building the good habits and all of that. I think that's not going to change. And I think you said that too. It's just probably always going to be one of the constants of how you get good. So thank you for that. I think that's a very refreshing answer to hear. I think a second thing I've done, and that is probably even more important today, is finding what I like and focusing more on that. There's a lot of advice in the industry at the moment in terms of where you should go as a designer. Go into management, do this, do that. Be more strategic, be more UX focused. And I think that makes sense, but that's advice coming from the outside, not from the inside, right? I think it's very important for you to figure out what you like doing and what gets you excited to wake up in the morning and spend, spend eight hours on and focus on that. Find the kind of company that would allow you to focus on that and go in that direction. So if you really like visual design, you hate doing strategy, you hate talking to customers, you just like moving pixels and making things look pretty, companies are looking for that as well. It may might be a bit harder, but doing the opposite and going into a very like UX slash strategy-driven job, and it's going to make it so difficult for you to enjoy what you're doing on a daily basis. And I was happy to like a part of design and fall in love with it and get paid for doing that. And early on in my career, it was graphic design for musicians and music artists, and now it's helping businesses solve problems. But if I did not enjoy it, I think my life would be much worse than it is today. Yeah. 100%. And if I may add something on top of that, I don't only think it's important to figure out what type of work you enjoy doing, but also who do you enjoy doing the work for? One of the things that I've 
learned in my career is that I don't actually enjoy that much working with agencies. I, I just or for I would much rather be in house, and there are even in house there are just certain types of companies that fit within certain parameters that work in a specific way that I like to work for. And you know, you could argue that's a privileged position to be in. And frankly, in the beginning of my career, I didn't have these because I didn't know these. I think in the beginning and the early career is very important to job hop a little bit from an organization to organization, from industry to industry, B2B2C. I think the more you try out, the more certain you're going to be when you find the right one. Yeah, this is the one for me. And then you can just continue working on that path. So I really, I always encourage early stage designers, oh, should I take this job or should I take jobs? Take a job that teaches you about what the type of work you like to do. And, and, and to be frank, that's where agencies oftentimes come in handy because in an agency, you do get to work on a lot of different projects. So yeah, that's that's another great answer. See, one question, two great answers there. But just because you've given me two answers, you're not going to get away from the second question, <laughs> which is what are we not talking about enough when it comes to design? I don't think there's anything, to be honest. I think there is so much knowledge in the industry at the moment that we're talking about everything. I think it's harder to figure out what you relate to and what to trust and what not to trust. I don't think we're talking about anything. I think we're talking about everything. And that's what I'm trying to say. We're talking about being strategic. We're talking about QX. We're talking about AI. We're talking about being business driven and measuring the impact of the work you're doing. We're even talking about visual design in certain companies. There are so many articles from Airbnb and these very visual driven companies. Nothing comes to mind when I think about what I'm missing in the industry at the moment. That's a very nice thing to know. We're living in, in a time where information is available and no matter what you want to find out, you can Google it or chat GPT it and there is going to be an answer for it that's going to help you. So I think we're talking about a lot of things. I'm happy about that. Maybe we should try, try talking less and doing more. Oh, I love that. Talk less, do more. Oh, what a good note to end the show. And that, where can people find out more about you, get in touch with you, read about the work you're doing with Rubber Studio? Where can they uh, do that online? I think I spend quite a bit of time on Twitter or X or however you want to call it. So I'm generally in there posting a lot of stuff. On top of that, I'm on LinkedIn. If you want to message me, you can always find me there. All right. We'll make all of this easy to find for our listeners. Dan, Thank you so much for being on Design Meets Business. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. If you've listened this far, thank you. I appreciate you and I hope you've learned something that makes you just a little bit better than yesterday. You can check out the show notes on designmeetsbusiness.co. If this has taught you anything, please consider leaving a review and sharing the episode with someone else who could learn from it. And I'll catch you in the next one.